Today is a top 10 Chicago weather day. Oh, my God. It's gorgeous outside. This is like... The humidity is finally gone. Uh, I can walk to work without, you know, having to change my shirt. It's right. Great. Do you have to do that no- normally, Kevin? Uh, not all the time, but That's I have to. That's why I, I see you shirtless Friday. in the hallway sometimes. Ah, That's what's me. happening. Good hey. thing it's radio. You can't see me. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately for the rest of us, we can't. Uh, just kidding, Kevin. Thank you for that great, uh, great report. Yeah, it's a wonderful day outside. So uh, take your Walkman out or your telephone and uh, listen to WGN Radio on a walk because we've got a great show for you. Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, is coming up next. Dan Tarlecki from Powell and Peasman is going to be joining us. He's got a great story. He comes from this blue-collar family. He's a lawyer, and he helps people like you, like me, everyday folks. And uh, we're going to chat through what video evidence is out there these days. Boy, everyone's got a cell phone, and that certainly can help cases that he's in. And uh, we're going to chat through that and plenty other things as well. But we do have a question of the day today. 312-981-7200. If you've got any guesses, i got a WGN radio t-shirt, the 100th anniversary one to give away to you. So here it is. This crime peaked in the late 19th century, so the late 1800s, this crime. It became exceedingly rare through the 20th century. But it jumped nearly 400% in some parts of the country in the last few years. So it was really, really a big crime in the late 1800s. Then it went away for the 1900s, and it's back, especially the last couple of years. 312-981-7200, if you have any guesses. We'll get to those and the rest of Let's Get Legal after this on WGN. Well, a very happy Saturday afternoon, everyone. Just a gorgeous day. 111 on WGN. I'm John Hanson, and this is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, and Dan Tarlecki is going to be joining us in just a little bit from Powell and Peasman. And also in the next hour, a really interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to chatting with Professor Michael Leroy of the University of Illinois as we take a step back after so many uh, momentous uh, decisions by the Supreme Court in this term, many of them, of course, coming out over the last month. Where do we go from here? We have a confidence problem in people's belief of what the Supreme Court is and has done. Does that erode our democracy more? Are we in trouble? I'll ask Professor Leroy what he thinks. I'll ask him what he thinks about packing the court, too. I know a lot of people are advocating for that, but does that do just as much damage as anything else in the confidence in our institutions if you just say, okay, well, let's throw more people on the court to balance things out? I don't know. I'm looking forward to the conversation. That'll be in the 2 o'clock hour. But our question of the day today, this crime peaked in the late 1800s, became extremely rare in the 1900s, but it jumped nearly 400% in some parts of the country in the last couple years. Let's go to the phone lines, try and get some guesses. And we got Scott as our first guest of the day. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Good, thank you. What's your guess? Uh, Bank robbers. Great guess, but no, it's not the answer to the question of the day. Thanks for calling, Scott. Thank you. Let's go to Freddie. Freddie, you're on WGN. Hey, Freddie. Freddie? Hello, Freddie. Uh, we'll have to say goodbye to Freddie. Norman, you're on WGN. Hey, Norman. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. How's your day? Oh, not too bad. Great day outside. Right, isn't it? Right, what's your guess, my friend? I would say jaywalking. Great day for jaywalking. Well, I guess I should navigate that. Nope, that's not the answer, Norman. Good guess, though, okay? You got it. All right, let's go to Ed. Ed, you're on WGN. Ed, how you doing? Hello, Ed. Oh, Ed. Ed, yes, Ed, that's you. You're on the radio. My guess is cattle rustling. Cattle rustling. 
No, I like that though. I'm I'm wondering what would have happened in the last two years that would have led to a bunch of cattle rustling. Uh, it's not the answer, but I appreciate the call. Okay. Easier to catch uh, cattle now, and you pull up with a truck, and away they go, and no 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 sign of them being missing. Do you go look for them? Sounds like you want to go cattle rustling, Ed. You've got this whole thing planned out. I lost Ed there. I'm having trouble hearing you. That's okay, Ed. We're going to let you go. Thanks for listening, though. Let's go to Carrie. Carrie, you're on WGN. Hello. Hi there. What's your guess? guess is uh, stealing fuel or siphoning fuel. Stealing or siphoning fuel. Yeah, you're thinking the, the gas prices, especially the last year, maybe a lot more people are doing it. I don't know who would have done that in the 1800s without cars, though, but maybe someone did. It's just not the answer to the question of the day, Carrie. I'm sorry. All right. A lot of good guesses, though. 312-981-7200. Tell you what, we're going to take a break. We'll hopefully get a couple more answers from you in a bit. We've got Dan Terlecki joining us from Powell and Peasman after this on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Ben, you want to hit those spots for us? Uh, Ben's on the phone. Hit the spots, my friend. There we go. 720 WGN. This is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. We're getting our guests settled in. I'll take a couple more guesses for our question of the day. A crime that peaked in the late 1800s was extremely rare in the 1900s, but has peaked about 400% in the last couple of years. Let's go to Chad. Chad, you're on WGN. Hey, Chad. Hello. What's your guess? My guess is the grave robbery. <laughs> uh, fortunately, that's not the answer. I, I don't know if that has peaked recently. I sure hope not. It's a great guess. Hopefully not. Right, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chad. Let's go to David. David, you're on WGN. Hey, David. Hey, good afternoon. Well, it's not carjacking because of the dates you mentioned, but I think it's a horse theft. Well, interesting you say that because, right, I imagine the late 1800s, that's when people stole some horses. We did see the, uh, I don't think he stole the horse, but we saw the guy riding the horse on the Dan Ryan a year or so ago, so I could see where your head's going. It's just not the answer to the question of the day. I'm sorry. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you very much, David. 312-981-7200. Call in if you have any guesses as well. We'll try to get some more of those in a bit. But right now we got Dan Turlecki from Powell and Peasman joining us. Dan, it's so great to chat with you, my friend. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. I love your story, right? I think we have an image in our head of what lawyers are. And one of the things we try and do in the show is make uh, everyday lawyers uh, much more uh, as relatable as they can be. But you are a relatable guy. You grew up in a blue-collar family, didn't you? Yeah, my father was a tool and die maker. I grew up uh, just outside of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, my mother grew up in Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I chose to, I chose to came here. Do you think that that background helps you in what you do today? I think it does because uh, you know we're going through some you know economic ups and downs right now, and a lot of people are dealing with that sort of thing. And that's the kind of thing that uh, people in those kind of jobs deal with all their lives. You know, mm-hmm. I remember the layoffs. I remember my father having to look for jobs, especially when uh, you know things got bad in the uh, the early two thousands. And uh, that's why I want to you know fight for people that uh, maybe you know you might call them the little guy, or you might call them the people that that don't have. Uh, all the resources in the world, right? Exactly, exactly. Somebody the that's, underdog. Somebody that's going to fight for, I want, I want to be somebody that's going to fight for the people that don't have all those resources. What sorts of cases do you handle? So I handle uh, motor vehicle crash cases mainly, uh, big truck injury cases, that sort of thing. I also uh, handle clergy abuse cases, childhood sexual abuse cases. So a full gamut of things. Yeah. All right. You mentioned the truck cases, too. And uh, boy, it's so important if anyone out there is ever in an accident in one of these situations, uh 
speaking of the underdog, when you're going against a big company with professional drivers that have probably a, a big firm representing them, it's important to have someone like you in that case. It's not something people can handle by themselves, is it? Not at all. There's a, there's a, there are a lot of factors involved. There, there's a lot of uh, fact-finding that has to take place that just you know normal people don't have the resources to do. And I want to say something. You know, professional truck drivers, it, it's a hard job. Oh, for sure. You know, um, it's it's long hours. Um, it it in order to have a license to drive a truck professionally, you have to go through medical screening as well. Right. And sometimes the little guy is the truck driver. That's true. It's not just the pa- people in the passenger vehicles, but sometimes a truck driver gets injured, and, I, and I'm always happy to, to help those people as well. That's a great point, too. And often it may be, and I'm just speculating here, maybe the hours that they were required to work beyond what they were told what they were going to work. I mean, there's just a lot of things that go into accidents just beyond the collision that happens that we see, right? Yeah, and this might be something that, that people don't often think about when they think about a big truck accident. Uh, a single truck can run off the road. And if mm-hmm. there's somebody off-duty in the sleeper berth, obviously they don't have control over where that truck is going, but they have to count on their co-pilot to make sure that that person is well-rested and knows what they're doing and is following the rules. Right. There's a lot of things going on. We talk about gathering evidence and what you do. What are the sorts of evidence that you gather uh, after an accident that help your clients? Well, obviously the police do the first thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they show up, they they take measurements sometimes, they take photographs or you know, they're they're taking witness accounts and those are important. Um, one of the things that people don't think about, especially if they're injured, is taking photographs of the scene, of the vehicles, of things that can later be put together using circumstantial evidence to try to find out what happened. Should, do you recommend if someone's in an accident and if they're able to do so, take as many photographs on their phone as they can? Absolutely. If you can. Obviously, there are circumstances right. where you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But if you can get photographs right there, right after it happened, some of those photographs might be key in trying to figure out exactly what it was that caused the crash or who's responsible for it. This is something important I want people to, to cue in on here today about the taking of the photographs. Because I think some people get out their phone and they take a quick zoom in of that little dent or that big dent or whatever it is, and that's it, right? You want a lot. I mean, it can never hurt, especially with these phones. It's not like we're dealing with, uh, you know, throwaway phones or we got to, you know, develop all this film to get as much as you can on the scene while, while doing it safely, of course. Yeah, we live in an era where everybody's got a radio studio, a television studio, a camera inside their pocket that they can take out at any time. And it's, uh, it's important to use that tool the right way. So, for example, you know, you can think of if somebody's using that phone while they're driving, well, they shouldn't be doing that. But if they happen to be in a crash and it's not their fault, you want to get as much evidence as possible. You want to show you know, where the vehicles landed uh, at the end of the crash, how they ended up, which direction they were facing, which direction people were facing, what, what damage there was on the vehicles and how it could have been caused. You, you might even capture paint transfer, for example, from one vehicle to another and figure out which way they were going. And you can, you can figure out kind of what happened in a case that way. So there have been times where you've been able to use the video or the photos taken by your client to help make their case. Not only that, but I've gone after the fact and taken my own videos and photos to be able to help make the case. So, yes. When people are in an accident in any sort of situation, and let's say they're able to do this, should they be videoing their interaction with the other driver in case is that or is that inflammatory and might cause the stakes to get a little too hot you never know what could happen in a situation like that. okay you certainly want to be safe i wouldn't want to advise anybody to take a risk okay but if they can take a photograph of the scene 
uh, of the damage to their vehicles, the other vehicle, this, the location, that sort of thing. That's definitely something I recommend. I know a lot of people now have dashboard cameras. Yeah. In part of your investigation, are you able to either see the dashboard camera, obviously that maybe a client would have, boy, that'd be helpful, but even other cameras that are around the area, bystanders, people like that, is that helpful to cases like yours? Absolutely. I mean, I wish I had video in every case, right? right? And sometimes you don't get that luxury. But I can tell you a story of a client that came to me. He was a truck driver, professional truck driver. He was hit as a pedestrian walking in the parking lot of a truck stop. Oh, wow. Okay. And he had already spoken to a number of attorneys who had turned him away. Now, there was video of this incident. And it was gathered by the police, thank goodness. And it was of a dash cam facing outward of a truck that was parked nearby. Of course, right. Now, this was at night. It was sleeting, I think, you know, middle of winter. um, And you could barely see what had happened. Mm -hmm. But thanks to that video, because we had eyewitness testimony basically that wasn't good for my client. Mm-hmm. We had eyewitness testimony. And, you know, there's a lot of science behind how eyewitness testimony based on memory is not always not accurate. Good. But, you know, a, a video doesn't have to, you know, doesn't have to eat or sleep or mm-hmm. remember or anything <laughs> like that. Right. Um, or can't be influenced by what other people say to them, perhaps. Exactly. So uh, even with that video, though, he was turned away by other, other attorneys. And so, you know, I blew up the screen change the gain, all kinds of things that you have to do to be able to see, not only see what happened, see what direction the, the, the people were going. But in addition to that, I, I hired an expert who helped me with the frame rate and the measurements of the truck to be able to kind of figure out how quickly or how fast the other the truck was going that hit my client. And we were able to piece together through that evidence, not only that that truck that hit him was going too fast, especially in those slick conditions, but also which way they were going and that that truck had come around a corner Mm-hmm. A blind corner of a building and you know, going too fast hit my client. And that's how we were able to show to the insurance company, hey, you should compensate this person because your driver was not following the rules. And we're talking about when you're able to help a client like that. This is someone that deserves that uh, outcome who otherwise wouldn't have gotten it. I mean, that's life, potentially life-changing. I mean, he's already been, he or she's already been in a life-changing event but to be able to go in after the fact and at least provide them with the compensation that they deserve certainly provides a much better future from that point forward. Yeah, this might sound crude, but a person never wins against a vehicle, especially not one as big as a semi-truck, right? Right. And then imagine having to drive and you know sit with broken bones for a long period of time and drive a truck. If you can't do that, what are you going to do? What, what's, what are you, how are you going to make a living? Mm-hmm. And so it's important to, to help people like that so that they can go on with their lives. So is video evidence, it's not making your job easier because you have to obtain it and go through these sorts of things, but it can certainly be important for a jury to see or a judge to see. Absolutely. Are there other cases that you can think of where video evidence has really kind of swayed things for you or other examples just kind of out there that you've heard of where video evidence has really helped out? Yeah. I mean, there are so many cases that I've handled where video evidence was really the key. Um, even photographs, I'm, you know, not just video evidence, but digital evidence. Um, I can give you a, a story about a single crush, uh, truck crash where a client had come to me who was off duty in a sleeper berth, you know, and he was driving along. Uh, and suddenly he woke up and he's in the hospital. He had no idea what had happened. Exactly. And Unfortunately, neither did his co-driver. Mm. The guy who was supposedly behind the wheel had no memory of what happened. 
So we Scary. really had, you had one vehicle with no witnesses. How are you going to piece you, together yeah, exactly what, what happened? Do? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things. Uh, one is I got to prove, you know, who did what. Right. And how am I going to prove that if no one knows what happened? Right. Well, we've got photographs of the scene, and you can imagine a mangled truck, one that flipped over with pieces of metal strewn all over the, the ground and, and personal effects and that sort of thing. And no reconstruction expert uh, worth his weight in salt is going to say, oh, yeah, I can tell based on this exactly what happened and who was behind the wheel and that sort of thing. And in that situation, what we were able to do is we had photographs and other pieces of evidence that showed, hey, the driver was wearing blue jeans and work boots mm-hmm. and the guy in the sleeper berth not surprisingly was wearing pajama bottoms and no shoes right right so you put those things together and suddenly we have a picture of what happened how can my client be liable for anything if he was asleep at when that happened in the sleeper berth i see what you're saying so you find different ways to forensically put it together even if you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle you have enough that show what the picture was yeah you use what you have and you put that together and suddenly you have an idea of what it is that happened and how you can help a client yeah that makes a a lot of sense to me i think it's interesting because so many of us when there's an accident boy we just sit there on the expressway waiting and as they reconstruct scenes and do all this important work and it's annoying to us but it's important work that uh, that officers have to do and it's important for the outcomes of families and and the people that are involved in those accidents i guess we should all be a little more patient when they're going through those uh, investigations huh yeah absolutely i mean you know gawker delays uh yeah. rubbernecking you've heard those terms oh yeah sure yeah you want to give you want to give those professionals their space so they can do those investigations i had actually never heard of rubberneck i used to be a traffic reporter <laughs> rubbernecking is definitely an e a detroit and east sort of thing we don't say rubbernecking here in chicago we say gawker or what's the other one? Oh, we'll have to have kevin answered in the other way uh gapers delays that's what we say when you're oh, gaping yeah yeah exactly no i just love the colloquial phrases in different parts of the country even for something as minute as people staring at what's happening and the other side of the road. Okay, so we're going to take a break for the news here in just a few minutes. I do want to just kind of recap what you guys do, how people can reach you, what's the best way you want people to reach your firm. Yeah, well, you can go on paulandsteve.com mm-hmm. and you can get all kinds of information about our firm. Uh, we are mainly um, automobile accident injury attorneys. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, I have uh, my other practice area where I, I help victims of uh, childhood sexual abuse. But if you were hurt in a crash and it wasn't your fault, you please reach out to us. We'll be happy to talk to you for free. And that website one more time? paulandsteve.com. Very easy, paulandsteve.com. More with Dan, 720 WGN. It's Let's Get Legal. We are powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We've got a lot of guesses, still people on hold for the question of the day. Don't worry, we'll get to you in just a little bit, but we're continuing our conversation with Dan Terlecki from Powell and Peasman. And then we got a couple text questions. One was a comment from 312 that we're talking about uh, truck drivers and the situations that they get themselves in. And we have so many truck drivers that listen here to 720 WGN at all hours of the day. That sleep apnea, there's a lot of problems and things that truck drivers have to deal with that I think I think we're becoming a little bit more aware as people that maybe have never driven a truck due to you know just some labor disputes that we've seen and, and the labor shortage. But truck drivers have so much they have to deal with, don't they? Yeah, there are a lot of rules they got to follow, and uh, including how much time they have when they have to be off duty, uh, and how much time they need to rest before they can get back behind the wheel. And that's important. These are federally mandated rules, but it's not just truck drivers, even people on their normal everyday commute. I mean, 
we're talking about cell phones here. We're talking about using cell phones. You don't want to be up at night scrolling through your, your feed here and not getting enough sleep. And then you get behind the wheel. Fatigue driving is definitely a, a danger. Not and, and sleep apnea, these kinds of things, you know, they can definitely affect people's reaction time and, and how they drive a car and how truck drivers drive a truck. Absolutely. I think also we think sometimes, and this is naive of me to think that, oh, these Drivers must work for these big conglomerate companies. A lot of them are independent truck drivers, right? And they kind of bounce from job to job, and and it depends on who they're working for based on what route they're taking that day, right? Yeah, some of them are owner operators. I mean, these are this is a, a professional job. When I say professional truck driver, I mean that. You know, it's not just casual driving. It's not just oh, I'm going to go down to the corner store. You've got a lot of things you've got to have. Not only in your background, the training, you have to take a specific kind of tests. A lot of them take courses. You have a special exam for a special driver's license. You have to know how to inspect a vehicle. And there are a lot of things, a lot of factors that go into that because you're driving an, a, an enormous vehicle mm-hmm. down the street with families and kids and pets and, and you know whoever else and pedestrians. And you've got to be you got to be paying attention to what you're doing. I imagine you take some pride in the fact that when people call you and what you're trying to help them through is often one of the worst days or moments of their lives. I mean, they're dealing with something very stressful, and you help them kind of navigate that world to hopefully get what they deserve. Yeah, I mean, lawyers get a bad rap sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes rightfully so. But I feel like the type of, with the type of work that I'm doing, I'm trying to help somebody that's been through a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody that's been through something that wasn't their fault, and suddenly they don't know—they don't know how the system works. They don't know how to navigate this, and they're dealing with an insurance company that is maybe looking to deny a claim. And you know, if insurance companies acted fairly and paid fa- and paid claims fairly, then maybe I wouldn't have a job, and that would be great. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, we don't live in that world, and so I'm. I'm here to help those people that are in those situations. Yeah, I think we get the interpretation sometimes just from advertising and uh, how it works and what we see on TV, that insurance companies are all there for us. They've got our back all the time. And I'm sure there's great ones that do help out. And, the, and you know, But they are also on the lookout. They don't want to pay more than they feel like they need to. It's right? a business. It's they're a business. Running, yeah, they're running a business. And, you know, to be fair, so am I. Right. But, um, you know, I'm in the business of trying to help people fight against those companies that don't want to pay a fair claim. For sure. 312 wanted to know, is a drug test and a phone check, I imagine maybe a forensic look if someone was distracted, pressing buttons or texting people, are they required for every accident? When does it get triggered that you might be able to look at someone's uh, drug history or their current situation or whether they were distracted or not? Well, uh Drug tests, alcohol tests, that sort of thing for professional drug tra- truck drivers when they're involved in a crash that uh, that uh, someone was injured in, that, mm-hmm. that's necessary. That's, Automatic. That's required. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, there are rules that, that, that uh, govern that. For, you know, regular passenger vehicle crashes and that sort of thing, that's not always the case. There has to be some kind of probable cause or, the, you know, the police officer has to suspect that somebody was uh, intoxicated or inebriated behind the wheel and then, you know, the, the, the normal procedures work there. Phone checks, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm on the record somewhere. If you deep down in Google, you, you find my, you know, search through. Uh, well, all never the stuff never fun the deep down Google, yeah, but <laughs> every, okay. Every, every, all the, if you read all the stuff that I've written about uh-huh. this, you know, uh, this topic, um, you know, I'm on the record advocating for when somebody's hurt in a crash that the police should be able to take a look at someone's phone and see if Immediately. They were te- yeah, to see if they were texting or, right. you know, what were you doing? Were you on the phone? There are a lot of people, sometimes you'll see it. If I kind of assume that that was the case. Like, if you hit someone, 
the police, what, do they have to have probable cause that you were distracted in order to get that access to it? Or do they need a court order to do it? It's not an immediate thing. Yeah, it's not It's not an immediate thing. I mean, you know, police, uh, excuse me, a, a lawyer can subpoena uh, phone records if it's part of a legal matter, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily automatic that the police are going to take your phone and start searching through it. There's, you know, there are privacy issues involved in that as well. And legitimate ones, too. Yeah. It's But... Boy, I always just assume that if there was an accident, the phone records would be the first thing that police would look at when they try and reconstruct what happened, but maybe not the case. No, not the case. But I've huh. I've subpoenaed phone records and used the, those timelines to try to put together a story in a case before, for sure. Well, then that's an interesting question. Let's say someone knew they were distracted. That's what caused the crash. The police didn't take away their phone. They try and go through and delete whatever happened around the time of the crash. Someone like you and your team and the people that you hire to help out, can they forensically go back through that phone and find out perhaps if you were distracted, even if you think that you deleted it all off your phone? Well, you might have to go through the court system to get certain permission to be able to get at certain things because, like I was saying, there are some privacy issues. But, hey, there are a lot of public things that people put up. If they're on their phone posting on social media True. and it's public, you know, an attorney might be able to get that. And there are a lot of legal cases that, where that's come into play. Yeah, if you're uh, live-tweeting your drive-in on the Kennedy Expressway and you hit someone, odds are someone's going to be able to find that. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I know you're very active in our Ukrainian community here in Chicago. Yeah. I know it's been a, and it's a vibrant community. I lived for six years in the Ukrainian village. I'm not Ukrainian, but uh, I was there during the Crimean invasion and just seeing the community and the neighborhood come together, the flags all out. This has been amplified now across our country. Chat a little bit about your experiences here with this community recently, too. Yeah, well, I speak Ukrainian. Really? Um, my background is Ukrainian. Um, my, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Yeah. So I, I grew up in an immigrant household. Uh, my grandparents were all from Western Ukraine. And my grandmother told me a story that when she was young and the war broke out, World War II, she was in a theater listening to uh, speeches about Ukrainian independence, which wasn't really a thing back then. Mm-hmm. And um, the Nazis showed up. And her sister crawled out of a window. And my grandmother didn't make it. And that was the last time she saw her family. So I come from a family of Ukrainian refugees. Um, This is, unfortunately, a story that's repeated throughout history. And it's been really heartening to see, as an American Mm -hmm. with a Ukrainian background, to see so many people speaking out about this and supporting the Ukrainian community and Ukrainians in Ukraine uh, dealing with, with with this war. Mm-hmm. And I, in the neighborhood and beyond has really come together. I think that the challenge for a lot of us is as this becomes overshadowed in the news a little bit, as this lingers on, there has to be renewed efforts to keep it top of mind. Would you agree? Yeah. So uh, apart from my you know, professional career as an attorney helping victims of car crashes, I'm really involved in the Ukrainian community. I have been my whole life. Um, there's... Uh, uh, a podcast that, that uh, I know there are a lot of podcasts hey, out there. Give but, it, let's go, let's but, hear it. Uh, it's called Ukraine Watch. Uh, it's mostly on YouTube and a little outlet called Ukrainian Independent Radio that's Chicago based. And uh, it's an English language show where I talk to people, experts, uh, military experts, people in Ukraine, people on the ground in Ukraine, just about what's going on because I want to get the truth out there. I want mm-hmm. people to know what's happening and so that people care about it because it's an important topic. What are you hearing about what's happened the last couple of weeks and months? Yeah, well, it's a it's a war of attrition. I'm no military expert, you know, but it, this is something that's possibly going to go on for a long time. And you know, the, the Ukrainians are willing to fight. Um, they just need the stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And 
you know, we have to think about what kind of world we want to live in. Do we want to live in a world where uh, a dictator can just come in and say, okay, this is mine now, mm-hmm. and, and take away people's rights and, and, and spread tyranny and violence and all that kind of thing? Or do we want to live in a world where the, the governments are organized by people, where people have a, a right to self-determination, where they have uh, freedoms, uh, basic freedoms that, that we enjoy in this country? Uh, I mean, that's a fundamental choice, and that's why I think it's important for Americans to support Ukrainians and their, their fight for freedom. What can Chicagoans do now uh, to help out? You know, this is a great question. I get asked this question all the time, and a lot of times people think that there's really nothing we can do. I mean, right. we're dealing with a, a dictator over overseas, and you know, you can't send military aid as an individual no. to Ukraine. Yeah, you know, you're not going to go fight over there. So, uh, the one thing that I'll tell people is, you know, talk to your friends and family about it. Spread mm-hmm. the word. Don't forget. Uh, keep talking about this topic because if we forget and we let this go, it, it's it's just going to it's just going to spread in the wrong direction. And yeah. so we want to, we want people to know what's going on over there. Do the flags make a difference? Do you think they make a difference to Ukrainians there when they see on social media, you know, lit up displays on skyscrapers and flags on everyday houses? Do you think that makes a difference? I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, you were saying yourself you're not Ukrainian, right? You don't have a Ukrainian background, but just showing support to Ukrainians, a, you know, morale in this fight that's going on over there is huge. I mean, they're outmatched, they're outgunned, right? But as we've seen, it's over 100 days now. Everyone was saying, you know, when the invasion or the, the full-scale invasion started, no one, ex- hours. Yeah, no one expected this type of outcome. And, and you know, uh, Kiev hasn't fallen, <laughs> and uh, most of the territory is still under Ukrainian control. And it's because of the heroism of the, the Ukrainian people. Um, and their leadership and what they've been doing to be able to combat this. And I'm sure that when they're in that slog of war, when they're in that battle, seeing support from people in America and other places, I'm sure it's huge. What was the name of the the podcast again so people can listen? Ukraine Watch. Ukraine Watch. Download it wherever people listen to podcasts or on YouTube as well? Yep. Okay. Um, you're, you mentioned your immigrant background there, that harrowing story from your family uh, at the outbreak of World War II. Um just connecting it a little bit to what you do, I imagine that that spirit in your family, that immigrant you know uh, relationship and that, that feeling, it goes into the work that you do, doesn't it? Do you feel like that is giving you a different outlook than maybe other folks out there? Well, I can't speak for other people, but I know that for myself, it's definitely an inspiration. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think about the things that my grandparents even my parents had to go through that i i didn't have to they're mm-hmm. kind of standing on their shoulders so thanks to them i have these opportunities you know my my background was auto workers everybody i grew up around was was uh, uh, either a tool and die maker or worked on the line at at a, at a factory and that sort of thing and because of their hard work i was able to achieve what i was able to achieve and go to law school and all that kind of thing and so you know giving back to people like that is important to me I've also met Steve. He was on the program a couple weeks ago, uh, and I just I get the vibe that you, everyone at that firm, at least the people that I've met and, and what I've read on the website, it is sort of that we fight for you sort of thing, right? The, the, the underdog. It's not only you, but it's everyone over at Powell and Peaceman. Yeah, that's the atmosphere there. We're 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 a laid back firm, but <laughs> in, in the sense of you know the the way that our i guess our everyday culture is but we're not laid back in the way that we fight for our clients that's for sure approachable people feel comfortable chatting yeah, with you yeah that's a better way to put it yeah no i think then that's important because i feel like when we call a law firm on a dark day uh we feel we're already in a vulnerable position and we want someone who gets that 
and um, maybe we don't know the legal world. It's maybe it's a little embarrassing. I don't know how this works, but people shouldn't feel embarrassed calling you guys, and you'll do it in an approachable way and make it make sense to them. Yeah, I, every day I speak on the phone with people who are going through this for the first time. They've never been in a crash before. They've never been injured before in a crash, and I want to walk them through it in terms that they understand. Hey, this is how it works. This is what happens. This is what you can expect without using legalese or any kind of you know in, any kind of language that'll confuse them. Right. 312 actually just texted in that they were just in an accident on Lake Cook Road. First thing the police did was collect phones four to five years ago, they said. So that's interesting. I imagine that there are some cases where that happens and other times not. So uh, and I imagine that you would be uh, happy about that uh, scenario that the, the texter laid on out for us. Dan Terlecki from Paul and Peasman. One more time, paulandsteve.com is where people can go. Can I read the phone number on your card? Is that the number you want people to reach you at? Yeah, absolutely. 312 635 Five four zero zero three one two six three five fifty four hundred paulandsteve.com. Dan, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming on by, okay? Thank you so much for having me. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we'll have more. Oh, we'll get some answers to the question of the day to all those folks that have been holding for so long after this on WGN. Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. It's on John Hansen was just taking pictures with Dan here before he left. We looked behind us at this incredible view. We have 18 stories above where the river meets the lake, and what an incredible, gorgeous day. Downtown is hopping today, to be sure. All right, 312-981-7200. That is our phone number. In the next hour, we're going to have a great conversation about where we go from here uh, in terms of our confidence in the Supreme Court. It's at an all-time low. Uh, about 25% of folks feel confidence in the Supreme Court. What does that mean? Does that matter? Does it does it matter moving forward? Is it a threat to democracy? I don't know. But Professor Michael Leroy from the University of Illinois Law School will have some thoughts about that in the next hour. But we want to get an answer to the question of the day. I've got a 100th anniversary WGN radio t-shirt to give away. This crime peaked in the late 1800s, but then became extremely rare in the 1900s. But... In the last two years, it's jumped nearly 400% in some parts of the country. Let's go to the phone lines to some very patient listeners who have held. Steve, a uh, very happy Saturday to you, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, this, this is going to sound kind of morbid. I did hear a story um, of a funeral home selling body parts. Ooh, like, body parts. Oh, like organ stealing. Interesting. Uh, yeah, because I know that there was, we had someone had guess grave robbing earlier. It is morbid, uh, but it is not the answer to the question of the day. I'm sorry, Steve. That's fine. Thank <laughs> you very much. You do a great show. Hey, thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. Let's go to James. James, you're on WGN. Hey, James. Hi there. What's your guess? My guess is mail. Stealing the mail from the post office. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was probably super easy to do in the 1800s. Maybe it went away for a bit. I don't know why it'd be up now. Maybe the pandemic led to more people at home, maybe more stealing of the mail. It's an interesting guess. It's just not the answer to the question of the day, James. I'm sorry. Okay. Have a good one. Let's go to Barbara. Hey, Barbara. Hi. Hi, John. I love your show. Thank you. What's your guess? Um, My guess is... uh, a confidence game, defrauding a person after gaining their trust. Oh, interesting. Uh, the first thing I thought of was uh, the sting, and now they use it during texting and fake phone calls. Ooh. Stuff like that. Boy, Barbara, you put some awesome thought into that. And that's true, and right? Like people trying to take advantage of each other during the pandemic right. when they're super vulnerable. Boy, I wish well, that was the answer, Barbara, especially since you well, love the show. It's just not the answer. I'm sorry. All right, John. <laughs> Have a Take good care. one. Yeah. Bye-bye. 
All right. If you compliment me, I want to give you the prize. Let's go to Courtney. Courtney, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm great. What's your guess? Identity theft. Oh, but that's certainly up in the last couple of years. But it, I don't know. Did it peak in the 1800s? Maybe old-fashioned identity theft, putting on someone else's mustache? I don't know. How do you steal someone's identity in the 1800s? It's, it's just not the answer to the question of the day, Courtney. I'm sorry. Dang it. Oh, that's okay. Thanks for holding, though. Let's go to Brenda. Brenda, you're on WGN. Hey, John. Love your show. Thank you. My what? guess is piracy. Piracy. Right? Because we've seen that certainly in the news. There was even that Tom Hanks film about it. It was big, perhaps probably in the 1800s. It's just not the answer. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, that's a good okay. guess, though. Thanks for calling. Thank anyway. Yeah, no, it's okay. Don't be so disappointed, Brenda. It's okay. Tell you what, let's take a break. We'll maybe get a couple more uh, before we head to the newsroom, the Northwestern Medicine newsroom, after this on Let's Get Legal. 73 degrees at the lakefront, 75 at O'Hare. I mean, these are just perfect temperatures. That's, I mean, like, that's what I draw up. Kevin, I don't know what your preferred temperature is, but like, this is what you draw up. Depends on what I'm doing. On a day like today, um, this is perfect golfing weather. Absolutely perfect with no clouds, but I don't know. I don't mind, I don't mind 80s too. I like, I like a nice warm day, uh, just to keep that humidity low. But yeah, 70s great. You cannot complain at all. No No, way. You can't. No, a lot. And it's not allowed today. This is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. This hour, we're going to have a great conversation, kind of a retrospective on what has happened at the Supreme Court the last couple of months. Uh, Agree or disagree with the decisions. They certainly have been momentous and huge landmark rulings, and many of them in our Supreme Court uh, this past past year, this past session. And um, we're not going to really break those down with Professor Leroy. We've done that already, uh, scattered when the news broke, either on this program or the days that I've been in for John Williams or some of the other hosts. But there is a new poll out that just shows that confidence in the Supreme Court is super low. And why did it get like that? And what does that mean? I mean, really, it, it, it can be a frightening proposition to think about where we go from here. And I'm not just talking about whether or not you agree or disagree with the decisions. Those are what they are. But if, if people don't have confidence in the court itself, the legitimacy of the court, well, what does that mean? Can any uh, state start saying, eh, we're not going to listen to what the court says? Are we close to that? What happens if that happens, right? The court doesn't have an army that can it can usher to make people do what they say. We kind of just go with it because it's part of the fabric of our democracy. Anyways, I won't give away too much of the conversation. I'm looking forward to that with Professor Leroy. And we're going to get an answer to the question of the day after this on WGN. Hello, everybody. A very uh, great Saturday afternoon to you. It's July 9th, and it's 2.11 in the afternoon here on a gorgeous day in Chicago. And again, we're going to have our conversation with the professor coming up in after the next break about where we go from here as a democracy. If you have any questions, 312-981-7200 or any thoughts, uh, I'd love to have you weigh in as well about not necessarily where you feel about the specific cases that have been ruled on in the Supreme Court. Everyone's got opinions on that, and we've been certainly open to hearing those. But are you worried about where we go from here if uh, people stop listening to what the Supreme Court does? Are you concerned about the future of the country? And I know that sounds like really uh, out of left field, right? But we've had candidates for uh, state office, uh, Republican candidates saying that uh, they didn't care what the Senate passed in terms of the recent bipartisan gun bill. If the Supreme Court affirms it, they're going to ignore it in Arizona if this person is elected. And that's concerning. You have people on the left arguing perhaps that states should ignore the Dobbs ruling. And uh, if they can just allow and of course, it's a state by state issue anyways, but do something in effect to allow abortions, even in states where it's not allowed. So 
I guess what I'm asking is, are you concerned about uh, the legitimacy of the court? We'll have that conversation with the professor in just a little bit. But let's try and get an answer to the question of the day here. And uh, the clue was, or the question was, this was a crime that peaked in the 1800s, was pretty much non-existent in our country through the entire 1900s. I mean, here and there, little spats of it. Uh, but it has completely blown up over the past couple of years. What are we talking about? And we say good afternoon to Janet. Hey, Janet, you're on WGN. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good. What's your guess? Prostitution. Prostitution. The quote-unquote oldest profession there ever was, uh, was very prevalent in the 1800s. I don't know if it's exploded recently uh, or if it went away in the 1900s, but it's a great guess, Janet. It's just not the answer. I'm sorry. That's okay. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Let's go to Debbie. Debbie, you're on WGN. How are you doing, Debbie? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. What's your uh, What's your guess? Drunk driving? I actually don't have the stats in front of me in terms of the last couple of years of drunk driving. I know uh, drunk driving deaths have gone down precipitously through the late 1900s, the 1990s, and the 2000s. I don't know if we've seen that spike. I don't know. Would it, would it be drunk horse riding in the 1800s? Maybe uh, what they were doing. I don't know, Debbie. But it's well, it's, it's, a, it's a good guess. No, I love it. I, lo- I love where your head's at. I appreciate the guess. It's just not the answer, okay? Sure. Let's uh, go to Frank. Frank, you're on WGN. Hey, Frank. Yeah. Um, retail theft. Oh, interesting. Just in general, not necessarily the smash and grab guess. Well, that sort of thing, but, um, you know, like uh, cleaning out the uh, drugstores in California. Oh, oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so. a good guess. It's just not the answer to the question of the day, Frank. I'm sorry. All right. Let's go to Emma. Emma, you're on WGN. Hey, Emma. Hi. How are you Enjoy doing? Show? Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. What's your guess? So, my guess is train robberies. In the 1800s, train robberies peaked around 1892 with dozens and dozens of them. They went down to the single digits or zero some years throughout most of the 1900s and most of the start of the 2000s. But in parts of Los Angeles and other parts of our country, train robberies have spiked nearly 400%. And that, Emma, is the answer to the question of the day. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got from you, a, a woo? <laughs> Come on, let's get let's get let's get a bigger woo, Emma. Give me one big woo. woo. Yeah, there we go. Woo. <laughs> like you're doing like the train noise. There you go, Emma. We're gonna hook you up with a WGN radio T shirt, okay? Right. Where are you Thank calling? You. Where are you calling from on this day? I'm actually in New Hampshire. Oh, not to New Hampshire. Well, we appreciate yeah. you listening uh, all the way out in New Hampshire, and uh, we uh, congratulations on the question of the day. Thank you. All right, stay on the line, Emma. Ooh, yeah, I was wondering if we'd get that one. I didn't know if that would be a rollover into the next week, but uh, we were able to get the answer to the question of the day. All right, we're going to have a conversation with Professor Michael Leroy from the University of Illinois about the future after all these decisions of the Supreme Court after this on WGN. Let's get legal powered by the Illinois State Bar Association here on WGN. So thrilled to be joined by Professor Leroy. We chat with him often when we want to talk about the Supreme Court or labor issues. And Professor, I really appreciate you giving us some time here today. Happy to be with you, John. Yeah, and it's nice not to talk to you the moments after major Supreme Court rulings have dropped and had to get your professional opinion on cases uh, while you're like skimming through the opinions. It sure was an interesting last couple weeks of that session, wasn't it? 
It was. And, and I also enjoyed listening to listeners' perspectives on it. Um, it's a lot for all of us to process, isn't it, John? It is. And, you know, I think that is one of the beauties of working here at WGN and getting our callers, because I think we all get in our own silos sometimes, how we feel politically. And um, I'm not accusing you of this, but other people, including myself, and it is refreshing to hear from everybody. I mean, this is why we are a divided country in many ways, but if, if only we could have all the civility that our listeners share with me and with everyone else, we, we might be okay. I don't know. It's almost reaffirming, even if I do disagree with a caller, that we just we all are very cordial to each other. I think we do lose sight sometimes, and this is this is winding away a little bit, Professor, but that for the most part – most of us are okay having disagreements and having conversations about it. Hey, John, you know, that's the premise of our uh, democratic institutions is that we are going to disagree and that we have, um, we have, a, we have several methods for working through our disagreements. Um, and the idea is that uh, out of our discussions and uh, sort of the institutional mechanisms that compel us to compromise or at least push us in that direction, um, if we make mistakes, they're not major mistakes. Uh, but occasionally there's a, there's a lot of wisdom to be found in sort of balancing different perspectives. Yeah, I was just really happy. I had a lot of callers. You may have been on the air with one of them uh, or, or may have heard who uh, she mentioned that she hadn't read Supreme Court cases before this year, but she was. And she was reading the actual opinions and the dissents. And that may seem like a little thing, but I know a lot of people don't dive into it. If nothing else, I hope that people, you know, with these major decisions upset with them or if you're cheering them on take some time to read through their thoughts i think that can make us all better citizens it it really does and the, the fact that we can read them on our own and think for ourselves is powerful so and i do think for all the downsides of the internet um which are many uh an upside is democratizing information up until 20 years ago you'd have to go to a law library to find a supreme court decision um, to find the, you know, the, the original text, the full text. And now you just click and there it is. So it's good for us to read and to, to learn along the way. All right. I'm going to take off my rose colored glasses now. Okay. <laughs> Cause I, def- I'll do the same. I definitely put them on to start the conversation. Maybe we'll end with that too. Um, the, the the polls out there take them what you will about how much people have confidence in the supreme court and it's not a great worded question cuz what does that mean but they're historically low right now and they were historically low or trending that way before the roe decision or the dobbs decision i should say the overthrowing roe is this a danger to the court that people don't have confidence or trust in it it is a danger, John, and and let me take us back a long way okay. to the late 1600s. Okay, and I'll I'll, I'll close the gap quickly. <laughs> but the the main the main thought behind our government and our constitution is government uh, by the consent of the people, um, and that comes from a, an English political philosopher named John Locke, and he had a huge influence on our constitutional framers, and he has an influence on us today. We all believe in the idea that we should have government by the, uh, the consent of a majority um, and also uh, consent of the minority who don't approve of a particular policy. That's the foundation for what makes our institutions work. 
So what does it mean? I mean, no, there's no pollster that goes out and says, do you consent to this Supreme Court decision? We measure it, as you're saying, imprecisely in terms of do you approve or do you have confidence in? But when you see a number that low, it gets back to what John Locke was talking about in the late 1600s, which is that number means that people are not comfortable with where their governing institutions are, particularly the court. And that is a problem for us, John, because there's no quick fix for that. Once you lose that approval, that that confidence, it's really hard to get it back. When you say uh, and you talk about the idea of it not only being the consent of the majority, but the consent of the minority, I guess what you're suggesting is that even if the opinion is not on the side that you agree with, you agree to follow the, the law, the rules set forth. And that's kind of this invisible thread that holds it all together. That's that's spot on. It, it's inevitable that we're going to disagree and we're going to have major disagreements. But what what it feels like we have um, we're moving toward is um, not recognizing that the court is even legitimate. I mean, there are there, there are there are very hard feelings about what the court has done. And there were hard feelings before this time. You know, people on the right who who have strong disagreements with Roe versus Wade, they have a similar feeling that the court is somehow illegitimate uh, for rendering that ruling. So now we've got sort of two separate silos, left and right, that really question the legitimacy of the court. Um, and it's sort of the most obvious indicator of that is when you talk about um, packing the court, increasing the number, diluting the influence of a conservative majority. Um, but prior to that, um, when you had Mitch McConnell not even schedule uh, meetings or a hearing uh, for Merrick Garland when he was President Obama's appointee, that's a very damaging thing to do under our Constitution. It, it, it's, these, it's, a, it's another way of running down uh, the, the sacred nature of the constitutional system that was devised for us. I'm glad you brought that up, not only the Mitch McConnell thing, but the idea of packing the court, because I wonder if the confidence in the court is artificially lower, not necessarily solely based on the decisions the court has rendered, but the, the political football that politicians make the Supreme Court, it almost sets it up to be a failure No, on one side or the other. Right. I mean, so um, since the Robert Bork hearings, um, things have gone from bad to worse to off. Can you so just really quickly recap for people that may listeners that may not have been alive or that don't remember the Bork situation? If you could sum it up in 15 to 20 seconds. Yeah. Judge Bork was a, a very highly respected uh, judge in conservative circles and a lightning rod for criticism among um, um, um lawyers, um, politicians, and the public on the left. But but his confirmation hearing uh, for um, a Supreme Court uh, a position was um, sort of a precursor to what we've seen ever since then. Uh, and so uh, people on the right thought there was character assassination that was taking place. Um, other people thought, no, these are legitimate questions to ask of, of Judge Bork. He has extreme views. And uh, we've never gotten out of that rut. Uh, and and in fact, it's gotten deeper for us. Yeah, and it has been kind of steady along the way. There have been some, you know, confirmations. I know Ruth Bader Ginsburg was overwhelming. But even when you get into the Obama nominations of Kagan and Sotomayor, you start to see, you don't see those long, uh, you know, 80, 96 to nothings that you, you may have seen before. And I, and I imagine just diving into that alone, it... 
I, I, and I got an argument with uh, Dean Vicamar about this, a discussion, I should say, about the role of the Senate. And in my mind, it's always been like, just make sure they're qualified and move on. Dean Amar and other people say, no, scrutiny is imp- a really important part of this process. I imagine that is actually kind of a delicate balance. I don't think politicians handle it delicately, but there needs to be some oversight of the Senate, right? Doesn't there? Sure, there does. Um, and I think fundamentally you're, you're looking for, um, well, I personally, let's just say that, I, I want somebody who has judicial experience and temperament. Um, uh, so let me just get real specific about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I have followed her scholarship. She is a, a very bright conservative scholar. She spent most of her career um, at Notre Dame Law School, which is a highly respected law school. She had no experience as a judge until she was named to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um then I think it's fair to ask, um, what is your experience with managing uh, a, a judicial system of being a judge? Um, I'm not personalizing it. If she were on the left, I would have the same question. Um, at some level, being a judge is a complicated job, and you shouldn't have on-the-job training when um, you're you're new to this. By the way, I, th- this criticism holds for judges who have been liberals uh, on the Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, going back in time. So um, my criticism about uh, her recent elevation, you could take that uh, right. to judges on the left. But but I, I think that's where that's where the Senate's head should be, uh, is what do we know about your not only ability to manage cases, if you will, which I really take to be your temperament, your openness to argument, your openness to to what are the facts and 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 listening with an open mind. But beyond that, I think it, what we should be looking at is what can we infer about your future decision making based on your past decision making? Now, I think those are fair game questions. All right. We're just getting started. We'll have more with uh, Professor Michael Leroy in just a few more minutes. I want to ask him about packing the court. We kind of alluded to it there. It's what a lot of people want to do. Is it a smart thing to do? Will that continue to erode confidence in the court? We'll get into that after we get a look at the news here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, John Hansen here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, chatting with uh, U of I Professor Michael Leroy about uh, how people view the Supreme Court after this tumultuous session. Uh, agree or disagree, there were some major decisions that came down, and some people have uh, said on the left that the court should be packed, and we've been talking about uh, you know whether people have confidence in the Supreme Court right now. And I got to ask, Professor Leroy, what's your thoughts on packing the court? The term is loaded, okay? Right, right. <laughs> So when you say packing the court, that, that sounds like a, a bad thing. It sounds like it's purely political. Judge uh, Richard Posner, who is considered the, the best judge of, of our past two or three generations who never was on the Supreme Court, University of Chicago professor, a fixture in, in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals here in Chicago until he retired a few years ago. He suggested, and I can't remember his number, 19 or 17, but it was a large number. His argument was twofold. One, other uh, Western democracies have much larger Supreme Courts. So we are an outlier with a smaller court. And two, Uh, With a smaller court, you magnify 
the influence of one vote. If you had 19 votes versus nine, you would dilute the voting power of any single judge. You would also dilute the happenstance of one president names three, another president names one, and then you get this very politicized confirmation process, which is aimed at blocking people or tearing people down. Because if, if you're looking at one out of 19 versus one out of nine, the stakes are a lot lower. So I do think it would be a good idea. It would help to stabilize our institutions if we went to a much larger system. But if it's framed as packing, And if it's also framed as something, a response to sort of political revenge, because, um, you know, one party's guy didn't get to or nominee didn't get to be reviewed, um, then then it goes back to where we started our conversation, which is low confidence in the court. But I don't know if I have an answer for how to make people have more confidence in the Supreme Court. Well, I I don't have an answer per se. Um, You know, just another way of tackling the the size of the court issue uh, is to impose term limits. I mean, look, the Constitution was set up uh, with an amendatory feature, um, and and we have changed. uh, We've put, in effect, term limits on the presidency that weren't in the original document. We can, you know, if you can do that, you certainly can do it for Supreme Court justices. That would be another way to say, look, you know, the reality is we're going to be at nine. Um, but what you could do is you could create just more turnover. You could also have a mandatory retirement age. Um, that's another way you can handle it. And those would be less inflammatory uh, and, and still sort of drive in the direction of not entrenching um, either a conservative or a liberal majority for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. I just for the most part, that's going to require politicians coming together <laughs> in some way. Yeah. And, I, and I only laugh at it. I mean, it's it's deadly serious. I mean, I mean, I just don't see which side approaches the other and says, here's a potential compromise so that we don't tear our country apart. Um, I did want to ask, you know, we talk about the you know reaction after Dobbs. There have been other decisions in the past where the court that I'm sure people on the other side felt the same way that many on the left feel now. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, and we got well, through you know, it, is what I'm saying. You know, it's it's interesting to think uh, about how revolutionary Brown versus Board of Education was, mm-hmm. um, which um, overturned Plessy, uh, which created a doctrine of separate but equal. But um, it wasn't only in the South, John. It was throughout much of the United States that um, schools and public facilities had uh, separate but equal provisions. It's, it certainly was true in, in many parts of Illinois. Um, and so that, what, that decision was ahead of its time. Now, uh, for those of us who are here, what, like 70 years later, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's revolting to think of a world where there are separate facilities by race. I mean, it's just hard to think about. But I, I think that's an illustration of a court being ahead of its time. But I also think it's an illustration of a court that was true to the original principles of our nation's founding, which is that we're all created equal and that we have certain inalienable rights. And so in that sense, sometimes when a court is Um, ahead of its time, it's really hearkening back to our original founding. 
I guess I'm just trying to find solace that no matter which side you're on, that that the ship is going to keep going forward. Do you think that there could be movement in this country for a privacy amendment? I feel like we don't. It's this argument of whether it's enshrined in our constitution or not is age old. Uh, do you think a privacy amendment satisfies some of the concerns that the justices have about you know what what rights we do have in terms of privacy? You know that's such a good question, John, because that that's one of the foundational principles of Alito's decision in uh, in Dobbs. There are people who are very skeptical that he really means what he's saying uh, because of the rest of the opinion, mm-hmm. which seems so harshly directed against terminating the life of an unborn child or fetus, depending on your perspective or terminology. But if he were here, he would say uh, the people have the final say. And to your and that really sort of tees up your question, like, do you really mean it? What would happen if there was a constitutional amendment and it went through all the hoops uh, the supermajorities, and then you have a lawsuit that says, uh, but the unborn children did not get to vote on this, or their interests were not taken into account. Uh, or a less dramatic way of putting it is, um, uh, can the people um, enact a, uh, a constitutional amendment that does not reflect what the values were at the time our constitution was formed. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think that's an interest in theory. Yes. I mean, the people have the last say, but in practice, the, the way that, um, that Dobbs is written and the way it, it resets the analysis of constitutional liberties and rights, I personally have my doubts about uh, whether that would be beyond the reach of the Supreme Court as it's presently constituted. All right. Well, we're going to get into more with Professor Leroy after this here on 720 WGN. Let's get legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. 720 WGN, continuing our conversation with Professor Leroy of the University of Illinois. We've been talking about people's uh, distrust or not having faith in the Supreme Court. But for a couple centuries, we've uh, followed what they said, even if we agree or disagree. Do you have any concern, Professor Leroy, on either side of the aisle, red or blue states, would stop following what the Supreme Court says? And there's not much recourse. The court doesn't have a military or a police force. I, I do have that concern. When when we started this conversation, we're talking about a poll that shows something like 25% of Americans have confidence in the Supreme Court. And by the way, let's, let's reflect on the fact that in uh, many states, judges are elected, they're not appointed, they don't have life tenure, and that means they're, quote-unquote, closer to the people, and they're more responsive uh, to an electorate. Um, we have an elected uh, state Supreme Court here. So, um, and Wisconsin, which has its own very turbulent uh, state Supreme yes. Court, they have an elected uh, election process. And, and that's a roundabout way of saying that if, if the public doesn't have confidence in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court issues any particular ruling, it, it doesn't have to be about abortion. It can be something that is different. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court is highly dependent on the coordinate branches of government to carry out what the order says. And the bottom line, John, is it comes down to either we agree to abide by the ruling, win, lose, agree or disagree, or we resist it, and and then the, the Supreme Court then becomes 
kind of like a group of nine professors where we have opinions and we publish things. But gosh, you know, we don't have a way of kind of implementing or executing what we publish. You know, you get a judge in a particular jurisdiction to to carry it out and and it doesn't happen. So I am worried about that, John. It's happened before. And in some ways, the Civil War is a reflection of all of that pent up anxiety about the the Supreme Court ruling in Dred Scott, the failure of Congress to work through actions. We are heading in the direction where it's going to be more and more challenging to execute the orders of the court. Yes. Yeah, so that's a scary place to be on a Saturday afternoon. Um, it is. <laughs> I, I, and, yeah, it is. So then here's my follow-up question, and take it however you want. I do feel like, and this has happened for presidents on both sides and for people on both sides, that when they disagree, they come out harshly against it. Is it still important for our leaders to say, but we respect the court? Is it important to say those words, even if your base doesn't like to hear it, to just hold up? the institution? Because we have a lot of politicians right now saying a lot of bad things. I think it's important. And I think that's leadership. And that's my own view. Um, uh, you know, the, the problem is we, we we have these siloed news domains. It, it's hard for all of us to, it's just hard for us to be in several domains at, at the same time. And, and our politicians play to that. But I think it's very important that um, people on the left and right and center, whatever direction they're in, we need more of that leadership at the top that that just reaffirms the legitimacy of our institutions. And and it's more than just play nice or be nice. It's the foundation for having a government, uh, the government that was established for us, the government that's worked successfully for us. For the most part, uh, certainly the Civil War is a prime example of a failure in government. But we don't want to go back to that. And so we need leadership to say, uh, folks, if you disagree, get politically active and and do something about it. But um, this is the ruling, and and that's the way it is for now. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to put the rose-colored glasses on, and All right. we have been, as you've been mentioning a couple times, through more turbulent times than this, but maybe only one, <laughs> the Civil War. I mean, obviously, there's been strife and there's been horror in our country but i i don't know if there's truly been another time we've been more divided than this there as we said at the beginning i think a lot of people are in the middle and i do feel like a bulk of this country does respect the law of the land and knows the appropriate avenues in which to try to make change if that's what you so desire and that we can keep this thing on the rails i do too i mean so um I don't think I, I think we're in a perilous period, but I don't think the the Civil War was the only perilous period in our history, which is to say we, we've gotten through other very serious uh, problems. Um, and, and so, you know, we lived through um, the period um, after World War One where there was a, a real concern about uh, sedition and communism uh, and subversion of government. Uh, and we were a, a very uh, anti-immigrant nation uh, and segregationist and, and um, uh, racially biased. Those were very hard times. We got through those times. There are other times. You know, the 60s weren't a picnic either. Right. The 70s weren't a picnic either for those of us who are old enough to remember that. So I I, I am really concerned January 6th is a, a one of a kind that I hope we never, ever see 
and and that's a, a very very worrisome uh you know indication of where we are but i also think you know i also think it's important to realize that that we have been resilient and there is hope for the resiliency to come through again yeah i, I feel that way too and i'll probably say that till at the end <laughs> I'll be like, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll be there with oh you. gosh. Well, sorry to, to, we went in that direction, Professor. I just do feel like no. it's important to hear and, and talk through these things. It's almost like therapy for the country to talk through what's what's what the past couple of years uh, have been like. Uh, agree or disagree with these decisions? I think we all agree that the temperatures are high, and it's nice to have calming discussions and smart ones here on uh, WGN Radio. And th- that's what you're here for, not me. Uh, thanks, Professor. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it very much. All right. Yeah, always a good discussion with Professor Leroy about what's going on. We had a, good, a bunch of good texts uh, during the uh, conversation. I get a, didn't get a chance to read uh, this from the 847. The Supreme Court started this country down the slippery slope when it ruled that political PACs can pile as much money as they can get their hands on into elections. Now it's only who's got the most money wins. It is so wrong. That is from the 847. The 815 chimed in, why can't we put these issues on voting ballots instead of nine people deciding? I think one of the more fascinating points that the professor brought up was the idea of, in a bipartisan way, packing the court till you had 19 members instead of nine to kind of dilute the power of one individual judge. That's interesting, right? I mean, I don't know, I don't know what the perfect number is. But I do feel like when you have nine people making these decisions and every single one sways things so much, if you if you doubled it or you made a 19, you know, an odd number, then it wouldn't be as big of a thing each time there's a vacancy. It'd still be important. It should still be important. It should be hugely important. But it, it would just bring down the temperature of each hearing, knowing that presidents most likely would get to a point, I don't know, four, five, or six people in their terms as opposed to one, zero, two, three, something like that. I don't know. I thought that was a good idea. I've also uh, prescribed the idea of Supreme Court justices uh, appointed every two years, and they serve for 18 years. And then it's just a very regular thing that every two years there's a new nominee that comes from the president and uh, that gets voted on. And then in 18 years, that person, it's still a long time to, to leave a legacy on the bench. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, it'd be curious to see what your thoughts are on that. 312-981-7200. We just got a few more minutes left on the show. I had to get this story in there as we look at legal news. And this is coming after Roe v. Wade, a very, uh, the, excuse me, the Dobbs case. A very interesting story out of Texas. I have no idea where I sit on this one, and I'm curious to see where you do. A pregnant woman in Texas vowed to contest a $215 fine issued after police stopped her for driving alone in the carpool lane. This is according to the Dallas Morning News. So she's driving by herself. She gets pulled over. Uh, the officer, her name is Brandy Botone, the woman, uh, asks Brandy, all right, is there someone else in the car? And she said, yeah, there is. And then the officer looked around and said, where? And she pointed to uh, her stomach and she said, my baby girl is right here. She is a person. She's 34 weeks pregnant. The officer replied, allegedly, according to Brandy, oh, no, it's got to be two people outside of the body. She told the Dallas Morning News, if a fetus is considered a life before birth, then why doesn't it count as a second passenger in the car? Of course, this follows the decision uh, to overturn Roe. She lives in Plano, 
And it's an interesting argument that she makes. She said the officer kind of brushed her off when she mentioned uh, the living. Uh, this is a living child, according to what's going on, according to the law right now. And uh, the officer did say that the fine would probably be dropped if she wanted to challenge it. But she still uh, got the ticket for two hundred and fifteen dollars. So that's interesting. I don't know. I find that to be <laughs> just one of the uh, permutations that can come out of these decisions about what happens. There's been arguments and people have wondered if a woman, uh, an immigrant, is pregnant in the country, gets pregnant in the United States, uh, is their fetus now an American citizen uh, before it's born? I don't know, right? These are legal ramifications and things that will have to get sorted out after this new ruling that we've had and uh, the interesting permutations thereof. Uh, The the text from the 3630 says, I'm pro-choice, but that shouldn't be in the Constitution. It should be up to the states. That's from Danny. Other people have said something similar, too. I know it's an issue that divides people, and uh, we won't try and linger on it too much longer here today, but it is an interesting one, the ramifications of it. The other big legal story I saw yesterday was actually a business story about Twitter and the idea that Elon Musk has now walked away from his $44 billion deal to acquire the social media company. And it'll be really interesting to see. This is going to be adjudicated in a Delaware court um, where there's this dispute. Apparently, Elon Musk could have uh, had just paid a billion dollars, which, you know, chump changed Elon Musk to just get out of the deal. Or there's some amount that he could have just paid. But Twitter's not going to let him do that. Twitter, at least for right now, wants to get to court or at least threaten court to maybe get a better settlement. Because when Elon Musk came forward and made this offer at this amount of money, There's some binding ramifications to that. He says that it turns out Twitter has way more fake bots than Twitter lets on, and that gives him an exit strategy out of this deal. No harm, no foul. Just, uh, you know, clap your hands and move on. But the company is going to try and make him, at least as of right now, complete the deal. So we'll have to track that case as well. It'll be interesting to see how the courts rule or if it ends up uh, in the courts or if they'll settle it. Well, those are some of the big uh, legal stories of the week. I really appreciate everyone joining here on this Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on this Saturday afternoon. We will be back next week at our normal time again at 1 o'clock on Saturday. And I'll be back this week, uh, this upcoming week, Monday through Thursday on Your Money Matters. i got a quick little break and then the news on WGN.